right, well, welcome back to another episode of Answer Anyone with Guy Tenbrickley, hosted by Joel Sedicase. I'm Joel Sedicase. And I'm Cy Tenbrickley. I was just watching the intro there. We have to meet again so that we can get rid of that cheesy picture from when we met in Franklin, Tennessee. Agreed. Agreed. Definitely. Well, are you going to It was great to meet you, actually. Oh, man. Well, I'll tell you what. So um, for, for anyone watching or listening, uh, and if you're, by the way, if you're listening to the, the audio podcast, uh, go ahead and uh, if you haven't done so, please, please leave us an honest five-star rating and review. And uh, that's a great way of helping others find out about the show through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all that good stuff. So um, there, there are ways. I'm going to the next one, I think, but I don't know if I'll be able to go to that. I think it's in April, right? Have they made that public yet? They've... I, I don't know if they have or not. I think they have. I think the dates are 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 published. Um, I'm not sure if I'm going either. But uh, but it was so cool at the last one, the last uh, Fight Laugh Feast conference, because so Alisa and I, you know, were set up there uh, down in uh, Franklin, Tennessee. We had our booth, and um, I put my uh, I, I I put the video feed of the Think podcast. Um, and I, I displayed it on an iPad, set it up on our table, and I put it to the video that you and I did, uh, that we did, you know, at sometime earlier in the year. And um, and you were gracious, brother. You came over and and you were hanging out at our booth. And um, for those for for, the, for those who might not be aware, the folks who go to the Fight Laugh Feast conference, they know Sai, they know his work, they're familiar with with uh, his ministry, answer anyone. And so they would come up and they would start talking to me and they'd say, oh, you know, what is this, the Think Institute? And I'd say, oh, well, you know, we've got this podcast, here are the resources that we have. And, um, you know, our our most watched video on YouTube so far has been the interview that we did with my friend Sai over here. And uh, and then I would point over to you, brother, and there you are sitting next to our booth. And it, it was hilarious to see the people do their double takes where they go, what, what? Whoa! Uh, uh, hey, sorry. And then right away, I'm chopped liver, and they would go over <laughs> and talk to you and say, "Hey, you know, brother, uh, you know, thanks for the work that you do." But it was just—it was such a treat to meet you in person and to have you uh, hanging out at our booth and just, you know, to be able to just talk to you and meet you in person. Well, thanks, brother. I usually tell the people when they have that type of reaction to raise their standards. <laughs> Amen. One of the, it's one of the weirdest things for me too because i'm a boiler operator by trade and you know i've got some things online but you know people often often ask the difference between americans and canadians and canadians i think are are quick behind americans but americans are hero builders and if they don't have one they'll make one and you wonder why a lot of uh, pastors fall you know especially in the u.s i think because a lot of their their fans they adulate them they idolize them and, you know, I think that's a real danger. And that's a danger with this apologetic, too, because it is so powerful. And I talked about it on one of the earlier shows that the beauty of the apologetic is that you'll win arguments. But the danger is you'll win arguments and you'll think that it's you. I mean, I don't know we want to get into story time right off the bat, but I remember I was at a, um, at a conference. And I was not a speaker there, but I was an invited guest. And I was uh, evangelizing really for the first time on the streets with this apologetic. And uh, people were just, you know, they were just amazed. They were slapping me on the back. They're saying, man, you crushed that guy. I said, no, I didn't. God did. But it was this sickening buzz going on at this conference about me with this new apologetic. And at the end of the conference, they set up two microphones at the front. And they asked 
people to come up to give their testimony about the conference. And so many people were talking about what they'd heard on the streets, you know, from this apologetic. I was in the back and I was praying, Lord, please don't let anybody mention my name. Lord, please don't let anybody mention my name. Lord, please don't let anybody mention my name. And I finished praying. And, you know, the first thought in my head was, I hope somebody mentions my name. And that's the danger of this apologetic. So um, they open up the mics and, and I uh, raised to the mic. And I was the first one up there. And I read from, I think it was Luke chapter 10, about the unworthy servant. You know, I, I say that we have to give glory to God for any argument that we win. And that's why, you know, when people compliment me, you know, to a fault, I try and say all glory goes to God. Because um, without him, we are nothing. Without him, our arguments will fall on deaf ears. And we have to give him all the glory. So, um, you know, I know that in America, there is a certain... Um, desire to build heroes, but um, our hero needs to be Christ. Yeah, amen. And it's, you know, that's interesting to think about that hero building is such an American phenomenon because speaking as an American, we really pride ourselves on individualism, self-reliance. And um, and yet I, I wonder if a lot of that stems from, um, you know, we were a nation that was created by these great founding fathers and you know these are men that we look to and and um you know we sort of we 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 love our constitution i'm i'm speaking especially of you know more conservative uh, patriotic type americans and and not everybody feels this way certainly but but yeah we were founded by heroes so i wonder if that's i wonder if that's why i wonder if that's why we build up heroes like that i've never thought about that being an american phenomenon well, um, we each have our idiosyncrasies. Um, Canadians, for example, we have a huge inferiority complex because we live beside our big brother. So if you're ever talking to a Canadian and you mention an actor or somebody who happens to be Canadian, you'll hear that that person's Canadian because we have to tell you. But Americans, and the reason that I believe they're hero builders, I, you know, it's just a difference. I think Canadians do it to some regard as well, but they live vicariously. They live through people. They live through their sports heroes. They might live through their pastors. And they live through their children. And I remember I was at a conference uh, with a friend of mine when I was still working. I was in the auto industry. And I was at a conference and they wanted to attract more Canadians. And they said, what is the main difference between Canadians and Americans? And I said, well, Americans live vicariously. They live through people. And they said, what, is, what do you mean? I said, well, for example, in Canada, you would not be caught dead with a bumper sticker that says my son is an honor student. They would laugh you off the street. You know, who cares, who cares what your really? son does? And you could hear a pin drop in that conference room there. And I said to my buddy, maybe we should have checked the parking lot first. But I mean, even just today, uh, I saw somebody wearing a shirt. My son is a, a Navy vet or something like that, you know, or he's in the Navy. And that just does not happen in Canada. I mean, in Canada, you're not lining up eight hours for a signature from Dale Earnhardt Jr. But I think like uh, Canada is slowly behind the U.S. So you see more and more of that. But um, our big thing is that, you know, we're living beside our big brother. So we have to you know, try and show that, uh, you know, we have some credit with them as well. And like I say, we'll point out all the, I still do it, actually. It's a, it's kind of a funny pastime of mine when somebody mentions somebody said, did you know he's Canadian? John Barrows, for instance, um, he, uh, he's been outside that abortion clinic in Orlando for, uh, you know, every day he's been open just about for, you know, about 10 years credited. He gives all glory to God, but was saving over 3,000 babies. But what people wow. don't know is he was born in Canada. And I make a point of telling people that. Really? Is that right? No kidding. Mm -hmm. Well, I got I to watch my. He, was, he left when he was like two or three years old, but. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, I've got to watch my tendency now to build him up as a hero, being, a, <laughs> being an American. <laughs> that's, a, that's amazing. Um, he hates it too. Um, we were at a conference in Plano, Texas, and um, 
And I remember I spoke in the conference and I said, for those of you who come up to John Barrows and say that, that you're his hero, I want you to know that he hates it. For you people who elevate him as a hero, I want you to know that he hates it. So I mean, deflating all those people, I said, but I want you to know something else. John Barrows is a hero. And they gave him a standing ovation. He, he did not like that at all. But <laughs> he's a dear brother. But I mean, the work that he does out there is just, um, it's inspiring. By yeah, the grace yeah. of God. We, I give thanks to God for people like him. Man, yeah, praise God. Yeah, I um, I, I saw that, that attitude, I think, uh, modeled very well. Um, you know, the idea of giving all glory to God. I have a, a pastor friend, Steve Coble, and, and he and I were both on staff at uh, Park Community Church in the city. And after he would preach, you know, people like to come up, the congregation likes to come up and shake your hand and, and talk to you a little bit. And, and I would see the way he would handle praise and people would come up to him and they'd say, hey, pastor, you know, great, great message, great sermon. And he would always say, God's grace, man, God's grace. And he was just, it was like a reflex for him to just direct that praise right up to God and say, hey, if it was great, it was God's grace. And I just think that that is so important because it is God's grace. What do we bring to the table? You know, that, that Jonathan Edwards quote, we bring nothing to our salvation except the sin that made it necessary. <laughs> And if that's true for our salvation, it's certainly true for everything that, that follows that uh, in terms of our service or our mission work for the Lord. For people who have not seen it, there, there's actually an, it's audio and sermon audio. It's a, it's a sermon by uh, Edward Donnelly called The Preaching of Christ. And it's amazing. And he talks about the power of the Holy Spirit in preaching. And he talks about a preacher who just strutted into the pulpit with his chest out, you know, and he delivered a sermon and it just was fell on deaf ears. And he could tell that as he was preaching. And he just walked out of the pulpit and his head was down and, you know, he was humbled. And um, Ed, uh, Ted Donnelly said, he said, if somebody went up to that man and said, if you walked into the pulpit the way you walked out, you might have been able to walk out the way you walked in. Wow. You know, and I think that's that's the beauty of it. And I, by the grace of God, I was um, able to spend about three hours with Paul Washer a couple of years ago, and I sat down with him. I talked to him about mission work and stuff like that. And I shared with him that um, I didn't want to be the guy in the limelight. I, I would rather be behind the scenes. I would rather equip people who are in the limelight. And he said, said something to me that rocked my world. He said, uh, don't make it an idol. Hmm. And I thought... I thought, wow, here I'm thinking that wanting to be in the background was the humble thing to do. And he said, don't make it an idol. We can, you know, okay. anything into an idol. I thought, and he said, I don't, can't remember what, what place he said, but he said that he would be more likely to be proud in a grass hut in Papua New Guinea than on the stage with John MacArthur. Wow. So he was referring to being in the background as becoming an idol. It can be. Yeah, we can sure. idolize anything. I remember I, I read an article once about minimalism. People were getting rid of things and just wanted to live on the absolute minimum. And the article was, don't make minimalism an idol. You know, and that's what Calvin said, that the human heart is an idol factory. So Factor we have to be very God. careful to give glory to God in all things. Yes, man, absolutely. Now, when we're, we're speaking about idolatry. And Cy, there, there is this ridiculous meme. And by meme, I just mean like idea that's out there that if you that it's possible. Well, I guess it's, we, we do make idols out of everything, as, as you pointed out, as Calvin pointed out. But if you take the Bible to be inerrant, infallible, the Word of God, if you try to base your 
not only your apologetic, but your faith, your evangelism, and, and your whole life on the Bible, that somehow you're guilty of something called bibliolatry, um, uh, that you are um, guilty of essentially idolizing the Bible. Have you, have you heard this idea? Well, I've heard it with uh, relation to a single translation of the Bible. And I would then agree with the people that that becomes biblical idolatry when they idolize a certain translation of the Bible above sure. you know, other sound translations. I think that's problematic. But to call something what it is, if it's worthy of worship, you know, when it says that God is a jealous God, because God is worthy of worship. So jealousy in that regard is not bad at all because he is worthy. And the Bible is what it claims to be, and God is who he says he is. So he is worthy of worship. So God says things about himself that simply do not apply to us because, you know, we are not worthy, whereas he is. So, yeah. I mean, it's not idolatry when it is worthy of that worship. It would be idolatry if you idolize something that was not worthy of worship. But when it's something that's worthy of worship, it's not It's not idolatry. It's true worship. Well, um, amen. And, you know, if we're speaking about the Lord, if we're speaking about God, clearly he is worthy of worship. Um, but what about God's word? What about the Bible? And do you think it's possible? Because that's really what we're what we're talking about today. That's our topic in this episode is, can I really trust the Bible? But maybe we ought to start there. Like, even in having this conversation, is it possible, Sai, to idolize the Bible? Are we in danger of taking the Bible too seriously or of making an idol out of God's word? Is is that something that is possible, probable? Do you see Christians falling into that trap if it's possible or probable? What are your thoughts? You know, that's, I think it's too broad a question to ask because I think that, you know, people can warp and twist anything. But I think that if something is truly worthy of worship, then I don't see how that can be an idol unless it's worshiped incorrectly. Um, you know, unless it's um, placed above things that it ought not to be placed above. But the word of God, I don't see how you can place that above things that are not that that should it should not be above. So you know, I think I'd have to see uh, individual um, instances of that. But the the God, uh, the Word of God, God and His Word are our supreme authority. So I I you know I, I'm sure that you could come up with an example that would look a lot like idolatry. I just can't think of one off the top of my head. So the um you know maybe we ought to uh, get this question on the table. Then do we as Christians worship? the Bible? or And if we don't worship the Bible, then what is our relationship to the Bible? How should we think about the Bible? You know, if we're not, um, and the reason, maybe just to sort of flesh this out a little bit, is, you know, you think about the Quran in, in Islam, where the Quran is supposedly an eternally existent word that's always existed with Allah. We don't view the Bible that way. So then how do we think about the Bible? And do we, would it be right or wrong to say that we worship the Bible? You know, I think it's, it's good that we do these things raw and that, you know, we don't prepare ahead of time. So, I mean, I do have examples from my past, you know, where I, where I hear stuff like that because we do not worship the word of God. And, um, this is what I say to people. And I heard this from a sermon from Charles Price many years ago. And it's the Bible is not the truth. And people, you know, are quite shocked when I say something like that I say the Bible is true. And in this sermon, he gives an example. He says, if you get a, uh, um, a uh, schedule for an airport for planes taking off 
And it says, um, you know, at three o'clock, there's going to be a plane that's going to be leaving from Orlando and it's going to be going to uh, Dallas, Texas. And then we say, is that schedule the truth? So, well, no, it's not the truth. Is it true? It's not true until that plane takes off from Orlando at 3 p.m. and goes to Dallas. So what is the truth? The truth is that plane taking off and going to Dallas. And that truth is what makes the schedule true. So the Bible is true, but the truth that, it was, that is contained within the Bible is Jesus Christ. He is the word. He is the truth. So that is who we worship. We don't worship the word of God, but it's the word of God that is true, that speaks of the truth, which is the personification of Jesus Christ. And okay. how ironic when Pontius Pilate said, what is truth? And he was standing in the very presence of the personification of truth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he, he didn't stick around for the answer. Uh, if only, if only he would have. Um, so, you know, that what you just referenced there, Jesus is the truth. John 14, 6, he's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. So then, so to, to sort of flesh out that analogy that you just, um, laid out, the Bible then would be like that airplane, uh, the, the flight schedule. It's true insofar as it corresponds to the truth meaning Jesus Christ. So so then, Sai, sometimes you hear words thrown around, or our listeners or viewers may hear words thrown around like inerrant, infallible. Um, how, how are we to think about these words? Do we say, you know, as Christians, do we say that Scripture is inerrant, infallible? Is it necessary as an Orthodox believer, small o Orthodox, meaning we we have we believe the right doctrine, would you say that it's right and necessary to say the Bible is inerrant, infallible? What do those terms What do those terms mean? Yeah, I, I would say that it would be right to say the Bible is infallible, it's inerrant. But I would say in the what the term is called the original autograph. So have there been mistakes made in translation? Yes. But I like what Dr. White says is the reason that we can know that we have the, the whole Bible, the, the content of it is not because we have 90% we try to extrapolate from there. He says because we have 110%. We have all these different writings. And from that 110%, we can, you know, come down to the 100% of what the Bible is communicating to us. But I, I, I would say that it's inerrant and it's infallible. I'm sure we're going to talk about how do we as Christians justify that claim. Yeah, well, um, yeah, so, so maybe what is the difference between inerrancy and infallibility? Do you, do you see a major difference there? Um, when people say, well, I believe the Bible is infallible, but maybe not inerrant. Um, you know, I, I use both terms almost interchangeably, but some people do make a distinction. Do you make any distinction between those two terms? No, I don't. And the thing is, there you might be people have people watching this who might be screaming at the screen talking about the difference. Again, I'm a boiler operator. You know, I I use them interchangeably as well. In inerrant is you know without error, and uh, infallible. I believe that means the same thing. You know, without that, there's no errors in the scripture. That I don't know fallibility. What the root word is that? You know, it's false or so. It's it's not false. So I believe they're interchangeable. Now there might be some etymology of the word that some people will disagree with me. And that's fine, but you got the wrong guy, you know, to talk about that. Yeah, well, I, I think that's one of the the benefits of discussing apologetics, uh, you know, at the uh, at the street level is because the the question that we really want to know is is the Bible true? Is it uh, is it trustworthy? And 
if it's true and if it's trustworthy, then any distinction we might want to make between like, oh, well, it's true um, for matters of faith and practice, but you know, all of the factual assertions that it makes aren't true. It's like we don't make those distinctions because we believe that it's both true in its factual assertions. You know, what the Bible says happened, happened, and because of that, therefore we can trust it in all matters of faith and practice. I mean, you know, what do you think? Would you agree with that? Yeah, the thing is, I answer that question about the truth of Scripture differently for a believer and for an unbeliever. You know, for a believer, um, how do we know the Bible is true? By the inner testament of the Holy Spirit. Now, it's not like the, the Mormon who has a burning of the bosom. No, we don't say that. We say the, the Holy Spirit gives us certainty that his word is true. But that's not the, the, the feeling that the Mormons get about a burning of the bosom, because Scripture tells us, Jeremiah 79, do not trust your heart. You know, and... So it's right. a different thing that we have from the testament of the Holy Spirit. We have a certainty of the knowledge of the truth of God's word, that it is infallible and inerrant. So is the difference there, is it that it's a certainty and that has to do with the mind and the heart, uh, whereas the Mormon burning in the bosom is more just uh, an emotion, more of a feeling? Um, how would you distinguish between the certain the certainty that is the testimony of the Holy Spirit versus the quote-unquote burning of the bosom that the Mormon says that he experiences. And, you know, I, again, you know, you're going above my pay grade. However, there are, I would say, two types of certainty at least. There's what is known as epistemic certainty and there's psychological certainty. Psychological certainty could be false. And you could be suffering from the DTs, you know, coming off a, a drunken stupor and believing that there's snakes on the bed. You know, but you might... Be certain that there's snakes on the bed, but it's not necessarily true. So that would be a psychological certainty. And that might even be more like what the uh, Mormons experience. But the epistemic certainty is the property of a proposition that cannot fail to be true. And that's what we have in okay. Scripture. And it cannot fail to be true, whether I believe it or not, whether I feel that it's true or not. It's the property of a proposition that cannot fail to be true. Okay. And so when we're talking about God's truth revealed in Scripture, um, just to make things abundantly clear— in that case, when we're talking about scripture, we are talking about something that is necessarily true. It literally cannot be false, correct? Yeah, that's right. Epistemic certainty. And I think I, I used to explain that falsely in the past. I would say, I have epistemic certainty. But if I say, I have it, then that's more of a psychological certainty. I would just say, it is epistemically certain that the word of God is true. Okay, so then, when a lot of people are faced with this objection, which is on the screen right now if you're watching via video, can we really trust the Bible? I think a lot of people want to immediately rush to the evidence. And, you know, this is something I would love for you to help me figure out because one of the things, well, and, and I've got this from you, Cy, watching your trainings. One of the things that I say is, as a Christian, I love the evidence. I believe in evidence. I, I love textual criticism. Uh, you mentioned Dr. White, Dr. James White, um, a, a foremost apologist right now, uh, really very skilled, very knowledgeable about textual criticism. And when he goes into debates with Muslims or with Mormons or with Jehovah's Witnesses or with atheists, he will point to the textual criticism. Uh, you know, when, when he, when he debated, uh, Bart Ehrman, which he did twice, he'll, he'll get into the, the textual criticism. And, you know, for guys like you and me, Man, I can I can pull up a chart that I found online and you know I can I can point to a book where I read about the the, the number of manuscripts and things like that. But um I, I asked you this, I asked you this um 
prior to our starting this episode, I said, well, what do you think about textual criticism? And he said, let's save it for the recording. So I'm, I'm legitimately really eager to know what is your take on textual criticism? Does it play a role in your apologetic? And if we're equipping believers, brothers and sisters in Christ to defend the truth of scripture, do we need to go to the textual criticism? What should we think of that? Um, as far as textual criticism goes, um, you know, I'm thankful that people have devoted their lives to it. And, you know, I might go to them for information for myself, but that's more, I believe, an internal thing for Christians. But I do not appeal to textual criticism when I'm on the streets because the very act of um, questioning the Bible assumes that the Bible is true. The very ability for the person to question it, they're borrowing the tools to question it from God. And I'm very reluctant to give those tools up to the unbeliever. And uh, one of the examples I give, I say, let's say there's two countries that are going to have a war. And one country has all the guns and ammunition. The other country has nothing. I say, when does that war start? That war starts when the one country with some of the guns and ammunition gives it to the other country. I say, I'm not doing that. Jesus Christ owns logic, he owns science, he owns morality, he owns the uniformity of nature. I'm not giving those tools to the unbeliever to argue against God or his word that I adore. I will not do that. So textual criticism as a Christian, I love it. You know, I love the idea of paper fragments. I love the historicity of the Bible, the preservation of the word. But I'm not going to give that to an unbeliever. And when you'll, you'll see, actually, that's really not their problem either. So, so we don't... Um, we could throw all the textual criticism at them that we wanted or or that they could handle. And at the end of the day, what you're saying, and as we think about this presuppositionally, we're, that's, we're, we're really just giving them more truth. I believe uh, Cornelius Van Til, sort of the, the father of the presuppositional approach, what's often referred to as presuppositionalism, what he says is you're just giving them more evidence to throw over their shoulder into the abyss. Right. They have a bottomless pit behind them, and they'll just take whatever you give them and throw it there. Now, is there a place for getting rid of intellectual debris, as Bonson calls it? You know, I think there is, but I think, you know, I use that sparingly. You know, but of course, you know, um, the, the biggest question that we get in the street, and I probably, you know, you're going to get to that as well, is how do we know that the Bible's true? You know, how do you and I as a Christian know that the Bible's true? And again, that's a question that I ask differently for the believe that I answer uh, differently for the believer and for the unbeliever. For the believer, I'll say, we know by the inner testimony of the Holy Spirit. We know that the word is true because God makes us know that it's true. I don't have to know how he does that, but that's, that's the case that God makes us know that it's true. But if the unbeliever asks me, how, I did, how do I know the Bible is true? I say to them, uh, well, if it wasn't, you couldn't make sense of your question. Right. And a lot of people have no idea what I'm talking about at that point. And often I don't get a chance to flesh it out, but I can now. When somebody says to me, how do you know that the Bible is true? I say, look at the fellow's question. How does he know that the Bible is true? When he asks that question, he assumes that there is something called truth, that there is a standard of truth. And you will see that the unbeliever cannot make sense of truth without God. And you ask them to define truth, and they might say truth is that which comports to reality. And I don't have a problem with that definition. As a Christian, I use a slightly different definition. But I say, fine, I don't have a problem with that definition. Truth is what is real. How do you know it's real without God? And they'll appeal to their sense and reasoning. I say, well, how do you know your sense and reasoning are valid without revelation from God? And that's where you'll see that, you know, Scripture calls the unbeliever a fool for a reason. When you try and get to the foundations of their objections against Christianity, Romans 11.36 says, From him and through him and to him are all things. 
All these things belong to Jesus Christ. And most Christians are handing these things to the unbeliever to argue against the Lord that I adore and hopefully right. the Lord that they adore. And I simply will not do that. And um, I hope to be consistent with that. And the unbeliever does not like it. And I, I say, if you want textual criticism, if you want to know how you know Christians answer that question, Google it. But that's not your problem. And you know, I have to do that with grace. I have to do it with love. But usually on the street, the person is not offering a genuine objection to Scripture. Again, they're just trying to trip you up. So, what you what I what I hear you saying, Sai, is uh, you sort of recognize. Are you are you getting to the issue behind the issue? Um, if if they they come at you, so to speak, if they present to you an objection to the truthfulness of scripture or the reliability of, uh, you know, this objection is actually very fresh in my mind because um, as we talked about last time, I recently went down to New Orleans to participate in some street witnessing, some street preaching. And while I was out there, um, I would alternate between preaching. I actually didn't preach for most of the time. Most of the time I was out trying to strike up conversations with people, handing out gospel tracts. And um, actually, an objection that I got maybe two or three times over the course of two days was, "Well, the Bible's been rewritten," and what I would, I would, um, you know, I, I'm remembering some of the training videos that I've uh, received or, or that I've watched from Greg Bonson, and Greg Bonson, one of the greatest apologists of the last century. Uh, he maybe he'd object, maybe you'd object to him being called great, but just meaning like skilled and and proficient. See, here's the thing, guys. When you start to do, when you start to work with Sites and Kate, you start to realize there's going to be certain things that you're going to say. You're going to say the word awesome, and he's going to call you out on it. And I don't know if he's going to call me out for saying that that uh, Bonson was great, but I think that he was skilled and is apologetic. Is that fair? Absolutely. And, you know, I actually I wouldn't have objected to that, but on on second thought, maybe I should. <laughs> I wouldn't. <laughs> Right, <laughs> right, right. That's right. So, so, but what Bonson says is, um, he, he says, uh, beware of arbitrariness. Don't let your discussion partner be arbitrary. And so I've got that lodged in my brain at this point. And when someone would tell me, well, you know, the Bible's been rewritten. I recognize that that's an arbitrary claim. And so the very next thing that I would ask is, well, how do you know that? What do you mean by that? What do you mean it's been rewritten? And, you know, oftentimes, Cy, what I would realize is there's really no objection there. It's, it's They heard that somewhere. Well, hasn't it been rewritten? How many times has it been rewritten? And it's like, well, and what, what would happen is I would ask these questions. Well, how do you know? How do you know? You know, what do you mean? And then they would just get frustrated and kind of walk off. So I started just jumping right to the, the, the cut into the chase. And I would then say, you know, it's a common myth that the Bible has been rewritten. We know it hasn't been rewritten. And I would just see how they would react to that because um, sometimes what the objection just needs to be smacked down. And I know the Bible hasn't been rewritten. So why am I wasting time asking them to come up with proof for something that I know that there's no proof for? So, uh, you know, what, what do you think? How do you handle that? That uh, that statement. Well, the Bible's been rewritten. Yeah, I, I try not to give them the ammunition that that Jesus Christ owns. But a question that I might ask in that circumstance, I say, okay, is it impossible for the Bible to be what it claims to be? And I don't know if you saw recently. I shared a clip from my debate with Paul Baird, and I asked that very question. I first asked, is it impossible for God to exist? And he said, no. 
I said, is it impossible for the Bible to be what he claims to be? And he said, yes. Well, first he said, what does the Bible claim to be? I said, the infallible, I don't remember what exactly, said, the infallible revealed word of God. And he said, yes, it's impossible for the Bible to be what it claims to be. And I said, well, well, how do you know that? And he said, well, there's so many other competing revelations from so-called gods, we'd never know which was the true one. And I said to him, uh, well, Paul, would it make sense to say there's no real money because there's counterfeit money? And he pauses and he goes, oh, I'm not sure what you're driving at. I said, Paul, would it make would it make sense to say there's no real dollar bills because there's fake ones? And that's a very interesting, and he would just, because he knew the, the folly of his answer. You know, he knew and that, that's what you see when you ask questions like that. It's the folly of atheism that is right. really exposed. So I just cut to the, you know, cut to the chase. When people ask a question like that, or they, they uh, challenge the authenticity of scripture, I say, basically, is it impossible for the Bible to be, what it, to be what it claims to be? And if they say yes, that's something they need to justify. And that's something they cannot justify. Because since God exists, he can reveal an infallible word through fallible people. He can do that. So they have to prove that that's impossible for God to do that. The onus is not on me to do that. The word of God is the judge. And what I expose them is that they can't even make sense of their objection without borrowing from God. That's why the onus is on them. Because we talked about it on an earlier show as well. I don't get the unbeliever to prove that God doesn't exist. Because you cannot prove a universal negative. But I say, when you say that God does not exist, you are borrowing standards from God to criticize his word. I say, okay, so you're, you're doubting the word of God. Fine. What is your basis for doing so? What is the standard that you use to determine whether this is true or not? What is your standard of truth, of logic? How do you know that your sense and reasoning are valid? And again, the more that I do this, the more that I realize that I'm also being tricked by them. Because then I'll have a six-hour conversation about philosophy and not sharing right. the gospel with them. So that's why we have to get to this is not your problem. And I say, as a Christian, I believe this to be the case. And you'll see a lot of times that the objections just vanish. You know, you get right to, to the meat of the issue. Now, this does come up, you know, and the thing is, if I ever need inspiration to do the work that I'm doing, I just have to go onto YouTube and watch how supposed uh, apologists, famous apologists, answer this question. And actually, there's a clip from How to Answer the Fool, and I could say his name because it's in the film, but um, Sean McDowell, uh, the son of Josh McDowell, he's teaching mm -hmm. a course on apologetics, and he's he's addressing the audience, and he says, what can you not use to prove the Bible? And he reaches his hand out into the audience and they all yell out, the Bible. Right. And um, so I play that clip in my talks. And I walk on stage, you know, and I say, now what if I said that I was the strongest man in the world? I say, you might have suspected it by looking at my physique. And of course, <laughs> it's a big laugh. I don't, I don't know why people think that's funny. But I said, what if I walked on the stage and said, um, I'm the strongest man in the world. And I reached out my hand to the audience and said, what can I not use to prove that I'm the strongest man in the world? And they yelled out, your strength. That would be absurd. If okay. I was the strongest man in the world, what would I have to use to prove that I'm the strongest man in the world? If I was the strongest man in the world, I would have to use my strength. And I don't say if the Bible is what it claims to be. I said since the Bible is what it claims to be, it must prove itself. Because if anything else proves the authenticity or the, the infallibility or the superiority of Scripture, then that becomes our ultimate authority. If, for instance, I say, well, I believe that the Bible is the ultimate authority because this archaeologist found a paper fragment in his dig in Israel, and now he says the Bible is the infallible word of God. And then the next week he digs up another paper fragment and says, no, I'm not so sure. Then that archaeologist becomes your authority. But the Bible must prove itself. Now, I just want to be clear that we're not saying the viciously circular the Bible is true because the Bible is true. We're saying the Bible is true, the Bible proves itself to be true, and 
if you reject that claim, your worldview is absurd. Now that, you, that don't is, have, you don't have the basis by which to even challenge the Bible. That is exactly what I was going to ask because you, I mean, you uh, articulated it and, and that's where people go next is, well, it's circular to try to prove the Bible by the Bible or to try to prove the truth of the Bible because of the truth of the Bible. And, you know, as um, uh, apologists who practice a certain school of apologetics and, and a certain method, um, we have no problem with circularity as long as it's approached correctly. And and you mentioned something. You mentioned we don't uh, we don't commit to uh, vicious circularity. Uh, you didn't phrase it exactly that way, but brother, could you flesh that out? What is what is a, a vicious circle versus the kind of circularity that you're talking about here, where the Bible authenticates itself or um, or proves itself? Yeah, the, the thing is, according to Van Til, there would be two types of cir circularity. There's a vicious circularity, which is fallacious. It's the sky is blue because the sky is blue. And he says what the Christian appeals to is a virtuous circle, or he actually calls it more of a spiral, that it loops upon itself. But we don't appeal to the same plane. We appeal to God who's outside of that plane. And I say to the unbeliever, is it possible for God to reveal that to us? Actually, I don't even say that anymore. I used to say that in the past. But I say, is it impossible for God to exist? And very often the unbeliever will say, well, it's not impossible for God to exist. The debate for everything else is instantly over because the God of the Bible reveals things to us such that we can certainly know them. So I don't have to ask if that's possible. If they say it's possible for God to exist, then the, the question of biblical authority, the, all those questions go out the window because that's what God does. And if they say, yes, it is impossible for God to exist, I say, well, you need to justify that as an unbeliever. And that's, of course, something that they cannot do because they can't even... They can't even justify the faculties necessary to even open their mouths and utter a coherent word. So, yeah. you know, once they say it's, no, it's not impossible for God to exist. Well, God revealed his word certainly to us such that we can know for certain that it's his word. And, you know, I don't, I don't have to approve anything beyond that once they admit that that's the case. And if they don't admit that's the case, then you just show the folly of, you know, saying that it's impossible for God to exist. So what if they do say, no, it's, it's not impossible. You know, you mentioned earlier, um, the question that you asked, is it impossible that the Bible is what it claims to be? Uh, is, is it impossible for the Bible to, to be what it claims to be? Um, and, you know, what if they say, no, it, it's not impossible. Have you at that point, Sai, is that game set match? And if so, why is that game set match? Because all you've then gotten them to concede is it's possible but hey i mean in a chance universe according to their worldview anything's possible i mean uh, you know um uh, fish can become a philosopher you know goo can become you anything's possible uh, a man could even rise from the dead without that meaning anything uh, theologically but if you can get them to say no it's not impossible why is that game over why is that game set match well what they've done is they've given you an avenue for the truth of your worldview and so when they say, well, well, what you're telling me here, that's not true, or that can be true, you say, wait a minute, you just conceded that I have an avenue to truth, whereas you have none. So, you know, they have no basis for objecting to anything you say after that. You know, they say, well, it's possible that that's the case. And then I say, well, this is what the Bible says about you. Well, how do you know that that's true? Well, I say, first of all, you've granted me the possibility that it's true, and you have now zero objection to the truth of it. And I'm saying, this is in fact what God has done. He has revealed himself certainly to us. And this is what the Bible says. And then whatever objection they have after that, you just expose that with their concession of the possibility of its, tr of its truth, 
and the fact that they have no basis for arguing against our worldview. And, and you know, I think yeah. I think you make a good point though. There is a danger of even asking those questions, even asking the possibility that God exists. And that's why the more that I do this, the more I get away from the philosophy because I don't want to give them that out. Mm. I don't want to say is it possible that God exists? No. You know, and the thing is, if the apostle uh, Paul or Peter was standing beside me and I'm asking a person on the street, is it possible that God exists? You know, what are you talking about? He might say something. He would he would proclaim the certainty of God's existence and call people to repentance. So, you know, and that, the more that I do this, the more I get away from these, these, these type of questions that give the person any wiggle room. I say, this is the God of the Bible. He has revealed himself certainly. And this is what he says about you. And he, this is what he says what you need to do to be made right with him. And if they start questioning about the authenticity of it, then they're looking to trip you up. And very often they succeed in that. And I think that we have to stop giving them that wiggle room. Yeah, yeah. Well, so so if they say um, if if they say it's it's not impossible, then we have well they've granted. Obviously, we already have this, but they've they've acknowledged that we have an avenue to truth to the Bible being what it is, to our faith in Christ being authentic, and of course, the God, the Triune God of Scripture behind our faith being authentic. But um, maybe if you could really drive this point home, brother, it, it's it's the it's the the two pronged truth that on the one hand we have an avenue to truth, and yet the unbeliever actually has no avenue to truth. They um, we we have a basis for truth. We have a coherent worldview. We have a, a, a solid epistemic, epistemological foundation for knowledge. They don't. How do we show them that? How do we show them that we have something that they don't? That that because we have a foundation and they've granted that, regardless of whether or not they've granted it, you're right, it, we have that foundation. But how do we how do we demonstrate to them that we have that foundation and they don't? And I, I want to, eventually, I, I want us to get to the point of viewing the Bible as a cohesive whole, because if apologetics is part of our evangelism, then we don't want to just prove that we have an epistemic certainty. We want to invite them to believe the gospel. We want to even even command them to repent and trust in Christ. So there's a lot there that I'm throwing at you. Feel free to just hack away at any of it. Yeah, the thing is, you know, the question is, how can we show that? We can demonstrate it, but we can't not open their eyes to it. You know, the Holy Spirit does not um, 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 give people, he does not add content. He does not give people good arguments. He opens the eyes to good arguments. So, um, you know, you, you ask the question about truth. And um, when they make an objection to anything you say, you know, once they've conceded the possibility of our worldview, you know, the possibility that I can have certainty. And then I say, well, how are you certain about anything? I know they, they people get really upset about that when, when I harp on that, but it is a valid point. I just I think you saw the clip that I released today from How to Answer the Fool. The person he professed to be a Christian and he denied Jesus Christ as his authority, as his ultimate authority. Now we talked earlier about a definition of truth. And the most common definition is the correspondence theory of truth. The truth is that which corresponds to reality. And I don't have a problem with that truth is what is real. But the question becomes real according to who? Because you could have somebody who's colorblind who could look at the same thing that I look at, and we have different explanations as what is truth. As a so, colorblind man, I resemble that remark. Exactly. So truth is that which corresponds to reality. And, you know, R.C. Sproul and the group that he was with, they, they modified the definition, and they said truth is that which corresponds to reality as perceived by God. 
you need a perfect perceiver. And I think that definitely is a much better definition. And it's a definition that I used to use and adhere to until I heard the, the definition that Bonson gave. And his definition is basically truth is that which conforms to the mind of God or that which comports with the mind of God. Because that, I think, takes away an unnecessary step of God having to perceive it. So truth is that which conforms to the mind of God. So that's my definition of truth. But then I asked the unbeliever, and you would be surprised when you start asking the unbeliever for a definition of truth, how they start to waffle. And I think in some ways it's an unfair question, because if you asked me that, you know, 20 years ago, as a Christian, I probably would have had a tough time answering. You know, solid Christians will say, well, the word of God, whatever God says. And I think that is a valid answer. But I don't mind helping the unbeliever when you question with because there's a lot of people who just want to pin them down with big words. And I think that's unfair. But I would say to them, so what is truth in your worldview? And if they if they have difficulty with it, I would say, would you say that truth is what is real? Truth is that which corresponds to reality? And they'll say, yes. Okay, I say, fine. How do you know it's real? And oftentimes they'll say, well, they don't. At, at this point, they'll say they don't. I say, so you say truth is what is real, and you don't know what's true, what's real. Therefore, it follows that you don't know what's true. You don't know anything to be true. And that's exactly what the Bible says. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Jesus right. Christ. But they might say, well, I know things to be true through my senses and reasoning. I say, great. How do you know that your sense and reasoning are valid? And what they do then is they use their sense and reasoning to give an answer. And the way Doug Wilson explains it, he says that what they do then is they're opening their Bible. Because their ultimate authority is their sense and reasoning. And what are they using to prove it? Their sense and reasoning. That's the vicious circle of the unbeliever. And they want to charge us a vicious circularity. Now, we do appeal to our Bible that God reveals to us such that we can be certain. The unbeliever doesn't have that. The unbeliever appeals to a sense and reasoning which he arbitrarily assumes is valid. And that's something, you know, so it's actually the, the argument, the, the charge that they level against the Christianity is actually the very thing that they're guilty of on their own. And that's when you expose it's the fool who has said in his heart there is no God. And too often Christians are just you know, giving up the store and trying to explain these things when it's actually these questions are being asked by what Scripture calls a fool. And, I, and we talked about it before. That's not that's not a, a um, um, intellectual charge against them. It's a moral charge. These people right. are willfully rejecting the God that they know exists. And I think that we have to represent God differently. Very often, like I said, we have to get out of his way and, and not not talk about something that isn't God. People ask me about this apologetic, um, you know, what they should do when they go and defend their faith. I said, just stop lying about God. Talk about <laughs> him. Talk about him as he is. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Now, um, Sai, when we're, when we're talking about scripture, the, we're, t we're talking about a book. We're talking about the Bible as a, as a book, you know, and, and, I want to pick your brain on this because I have heard Big tweezers and a thimble. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's still, uh, you know, I, uh, okay, I will. I'll bring, <laughs> you said that last time and I was, I was trying to come up with something to say, well, mine's, mine's even smaller. So comparatively, it's like, you know, bring a and a and, uh... <laughs> yeah, that's right. So I saw this Christian apologist and, um, well, it was it was it was someone that I I have greatly benefited from in the past, William Lane Craig, and he was addressing the accusation that there are contradictions between the four Gospels, and what he says is, look, it's if you care about contradictions, you you are only. 
caring because you view the four gospels as as a cohesive whole and why should we view them as a cohesive whole there are four different accounts and he really it's like he really wants to appeal to the lowest common denominator of whatever it means for the bible to be true and you know as a as a presuppositionalist i can't go that route because i view all of scripture as a cohesive whole, Genesis to Revelation, and everything in between. So, we, yes, we're talking about a library of 66 different books written by 40 different authors, three different languages, three different continents, and yet one cohesive message. But help me out here, because I'm bringing that presupposition to the discussion. I'm a Christian. I believe that the Bible is the Word of God, and I believe that it presents a cohesive worldview from Genesis to Revelation. The Bible has all that we need. We don't need tradition or a Talmud or a Book of Mormon or um, the sayings of some extra biblical prophet. It's all contained within the covers. But when I say the Bible or, or, or the triune God of Scripture is a necessary foundation for logic, science, and morality. What I then want to do, Sai, is I want to go to, I'm always trying to get back to the gospel. So I want to say the very same God that in scripture reveals the foundation for the logic you want to use to negate God, the morality you want to use to accuse God, or the science you want to use to disprove God, is the same God that says that the wages of sin is death, your sin is death, and that you are going to spend an eternity in hell under God's wrath unless you repent of your sins and trust in his son, Jesus Christ. So help help me articulate the connection between that, you know, the preconditions of intelligibility, which I know you don't even like to use that phrase anymore. You've said that before. But help me connect the dots between, you know, that 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 situation where they can't argue any of these things. And now I want to urge them to repent and trust in Jesus Christ. How do I get to view the Bible as a, as a cohesive whole like that? And why should my unbelieving friend also view the Bible, you know, in that way? Yeah, addressing uh, Dr. Craig, first of all, I have clips of him saying that, you know, advising unbelievers not to approach the Bible as the word of God. Just do, I guess, textual criticisms or whatever to conclude it. But then again, I believe that makes them the judge over the Word of God, and that's highly right. problematic. But you started your question by saying, well, and I get this very often as well, I can't believe the Bible, there's too many contradictions. And what do most Christians do? Well, let's look at the Greek, and let's look at the Hebrew, and actually this word means this in this instance, so it's actually not a contradiction, sir. Well, what about this one? Well, actually, in, in the Hebrew, it says this, and you know, and actually that's an Aramaic word, and, and then they, uh, try, they explain it, and they resolve it, and they say, what about this one? I don't do that. A lot of times it's because I'm not smart enough, because I don't have that kind of history. But um, I think, again, that's giving them guns and ammunition that they don't have. You know, it's, it's uh, borrowing from the Lord that I adore to give them ammunition to argue against the Lord that I adore. So what I might do in the situation where somebody says there's too many contradictions in the Bible for me to believe it, I might say to them, again, what we do is we look at what they're standing on. We're look at, we look at what they're borrowing from the God of the Bible to level their objection. That's what you'll see, that every argument against Christianity borrows from Christianity. So when they say there's too many contradictions in the Bible for me to believe it, I say, well, what's wrong with contradictions? You know, And then they'll look at me, well, you, you think contradictions are okay? <laughs> no. I can say contradictions are bad because to say that my car is both in the parking lot and not in the parking lot the same time, the same way, is a lie. 
and God tells us not to lie. So I have an absolute standard by which I can say contradictions are wrong. What's yours? You are you obviously have a problem with contradictions because you're saying the Bible contradicts itself. Why do you have a problem with contradictions? And I might say to them, look, you know, I, I'm in a good mood today. I might know how I might not know how we as Christians resolve that apparent contradiction. I don't believe there are any contradictions. I believe there's some that I might not be able to know how how I, how to resolve. But I trust God. But I'll tell you what I'll do, sir. I'll look at how we as Christians resolve this apparent contradictions, and I'll get back to you. But I want I first want you to tell me why contradictions are not allowed in a world without God. And they might say again, and this it gets too philosophical again. I think that you know again in a way you're duped by them. But just to see how the argument plays out, they'll say, "Well, you can't have contradictions because they violate the laws of logic." And I say, "Oh, you believe in logic?" I say, "Well, let's look at logic. Logic is universal. It applies to all people at all times, everywhere. Logic is not made of matter. You can't go buy a pound of logic in the store, and logic does not change." Interestingly enough, God is universal. God is not made of matter. God does not change. I don't say that God is logic, but God is logical. And I have a worldview that accounts for things that are universal, that are not made of matter, and do not change. I have a world that makes sense of logic and the laws of logic. And you're trying to employ them against God. Where do you get that from a world that's only made of matter and is constantly changing? Sir, right. you are borrowing from the God that you know exists in order to argue against him. You need to repent of that. Yeah. So when we start, when we start with believing in scripture, when we start with the biblical worldview, we get logic. And without logic, we can't make sense of even the very concept of contradictions, let alone the fact that a contradiction is a problem. And so as, you know, just, just a word then of comfort and encouragement to believers is that you might not know how to address every purported contradiction in scripture, but you can't make sense of the concept of a contradiction or logic unless you already believe scripture anyway. So what you can do is you you actually have a safety net, if you will, of of just of incredible comfort because wow, I don't have to have all the answers in order to trust God. If I start with trusting God, I can trust that he has the answers and if I don't trust in God, then there's really no problem to begin with, but I also can't make sense of the world uh, you know, as it is. Um, now, why though, why is it that the, why is it that the parts of the Bible that validate logic are necessarily connected to the parts of the Bible that tell me that Jesus Christ is Lord and I need to repent of my sins and, and, uh, and, and trust in him? Like, what is that necessary connection there? You know, I've I've got a friend, um, Eli Ayala, who I think. Uh, do you know Eli? Oh yeah, we talk um, frequently on the phones. Oh, okay, okay. So I would say frequently. We've talked a number of times on the phones. Okay, he's a dear, he's a dear brother. He is a dear brother. And when I was getting ready to do my last debate, uh, I called him up, and he really helped me work through a number of things, and. One of the things that I think he does very well is what he says is, look, we're comparing worldviews here. We're, we're, not, um, we're not picking and choosing tenets of Christianity to, to pit against one another as, though, as if you could pick it apart. Christianity is a, is a whole. So why, why is that, Sai? Why is it that we need to look at, and maybe, maybe, you, maybe you said this, and tell me if you said this already and I missed it, but 
why is it that we need to look at the entire Bible as a cohesive whole, and you can't pick out one part and say, I believe everything in the Bible except the part that tells me to repent and trust in Jesus Christ to, you know, repent and believe the, the gospel. Why is it impossible to pick the Bible apart like that? Well, the thing is, once they do that, they, they lose their justification for, for rejecting that aspect of it. You know, if you don't reject, if you, if you don't accept the Bible as a whole and they say, well, this part, you know, I'm not really sure that this is true. I say, fine, you don't believe that that part is true. What is your standard of truth in order to object to that part of the Bible? You know, and one thing, I, again, you know, I want to caution people as well. And I, I come up with this analogy, and I don't know if we talked about it in the previous shows, but I say, imagine that you had a time machine and you could bring anybody from history beside you when you go to witness to that person. And would you want me to talk to the atheist or would you want an expert in Islam to talk to the Muslims, an expert in Mormonism to talk to the Mormon? Or how about the Apostle Peter? You could have anybody other than Jesus Christ. I say, if you pick anybody other than, you know, us, if you pick us over the Apostle Peter, I probably can't help you. And if you are sharing an, an apologetic with somebody and the Apostle Peter would be tapping you on the shoulder and say, what are you talking about? You're probably doing it wrong. Right. And so, I mean, I think that's probably something that I have to repent of as well, because as I was learning this apologetic, you know, I was learning it from the philosophers who spent a lot of time in universities and who spent a lot of time lecturing, but you don't really see them spend a lot of time talking to unbelievers. And what they say is all true. Just like the evidences that people share, they're all true. But when we start turning that into an argument for God, I think then it becomes problematic. And then, you know, uh, like I say, presuppositions are being duped just like evidentialists have been. Yeah. And so, you know, these things are all true, and I think they're nice to have in your back pocket. But if people are at home, you know, taking notes and saying, well, I have to know about the precondition of intelligibility, I have to know that logic is universal, abstract and invariant, we have missed the mark. And uh, hopefully in the last two shows, well, I'll tell you more about, uh, I'll tell you about my friend Cristiano um, from Brazil. He was a missionary in Ghana, and he had found my tapes, uh, my videos when he was in Ghana. Now this man, he loves the Lord, and he loved apologetics, and he went to school for four years, got his degree in biology so he could become a better apologist. And he saw his grandfather, who never spent a day in school in his life, he learned to read by reading the Bible. And he'd be sharing his faith with people, and people would say, well, I don't believe your Bible's true. And he said, you must believe it's true. It's foolish not to believe the Bible's true. And he was in university looking at his grandfather, saying how ignorant his grandfather was. Right. And now, all this time later, he's saying that his grandfather was doing it right the whole time. Wow. He said he went to school for four years to learn how to not think like a Christian. And I think a lot of times when we talk to even presuppositionists, we are learning how to not think like a Christian because their issue is not the preconditions of intelligibility. It's not the cohesiveness of logic. It's not the de definition yeah. of truth. It's that if they stand before God, they're going to be guilty for the sin against the, know the God that they know exists. And that's presuppositionalism. And I think often too many people, you know, are, are so in love with the argument instead of being in love with the Lord of the argument. And that's a grave danger. And that's why I say I would rather people have people do it wrong than, than purport an argument that is, that is more powerful than, than the Lord that they're trying to represent. And I see that far too often. And I think that just because it was so new to me that I, looking back at my stuff, I think you could probably think that I was guilty of that. And that's something I need to repent of. And, you know, if anybody comes to me and say, well, Sai, where's the gospel in this? Then I have failed. Right. And so I don't need to teach people how to defend their faith. Like I said, I teach people how not to. Now, this is all true, and this is the foundation of our argument. But what I found more and more it applies to the philosophy student. The average person on the street has no idea what you're talking about. Right. And I think it's probably the average person on the street who, are, who is going to be watching this. And that's why in my lectures, I encourage people not to take notes. 
because you're not going to have those notes in your back pocket when you're talking to an unbeliever. And I say, one of the worst things that I hear is when somebody comes up to me and says, you know, I was talking to my unbelieving sister-in-law. I really wish Sai was there. Mm. And I say, yeah, I wish I was there so I can listen to you talk about the Lord that saved you. You know, because they're wanting me to talk about the preconditions of intelligibility and stuff like that. And, and, and again, all well and good, you know, all true. But I think that a lot of times, and I tell people this, if you know the Lord and you love him and you know his word, you can do this. Yeah, no, that's that's uh, that's very inspiring and very encouraging to hear. But, you, you know, you said something earlier. You said um, if they deny... If they deny the gospel, you know, what's their standard? Now, the gospel itself, the, well, I guess, okay, well, so, so how would you respond to this? So somebody goes, okay, I believe, I believe in the, everything the Bible says about God. Uh, he's, he's triune and, and, you know, Sai, when I talk about uh, the laws of logic and, and things like that, I even like to say that it's impossible to know to know the laws of logic without a god who is knowable you know so the god of islam really is not knowable i mean he he's he's a monad you know you you can't really relate to to a monad but he also is not triune and even the laws of logic um are they you know i i love uh, the work of john frame and john frame talks a lot about triperspectivalism and i wrote one of my my papers in uh for my masters he said, uh, or, or I, I talked about how Frame's triperspectivalism is really rooted in the Trinity. And basically, God's world looks like God created it, like the, the real God, the Lord. It looks as though he created it. it. It has all the characteristics that the Bible says the world would have if it was created by the, the, the true God. Um, but then somebody goes, okay, fine, I believe in that God. But I don't believe in the gospel and I'm not going to submit to Jesus Christ because I believe everything except for that one particular piece. And you don't need that. You don't need Jesus rising from the dead in order to have logic. You don't need Jesus rising in order to have morality. Uh, so I want to believe everything. So now here, here we have a picture of the unbeliever on his last legs, trying, grasping at anything, Sai, in order to not believe in in the gospel at that point what do you what do you say do you say well no you can't you can't have 99% you have to take it as a whole and if they and they say why what do you say why you know i i believe that there are people on this earth who are there to waste our time and i think we need to be very careful <laughs> right. with that yeah i think that that we need to love these people but again if they reject the gospel, they have a standard outside of the Bible by which they are rejecting it. You know, and the thing is, they know this to be true. You know, they know that God exists. And I, you know, to what degree they know his word is true. You know, I don't know about that. However, I would say rejecting the truth of God's word means that they have lost all authority by which they can reject the truth of any of it. So they say, well, I believe all of this, but I don't believe the gospel. I say, so you don't believe it's true? No. Well, where do you get that standard by which you can reject the gospel without God? Right. And again, the same question. Is it impossible for the Bible to be what it claims to be? The revealed word of God? And they say, no. I say, well, the Bible as a whole talks about the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that's what you need to do to be saved. 
and you know, I, I don't think it's, it's good to deflect, but you know, I think that you can even say, we'll get back to that. But let me ask you this question. If you die tonight, what's going to happen to you? Yeah, if you stand yeah. before the God that created you. And, you know, a lot of people use that in order to deflect and not get back to the question. But I think you can get back to that question. You can answer it in a God-honoring way. But if they actually sincerely talk to you about the, the, the real matter, then that question is going to look a whole lot differently. You know, and like there's people on the street trying to prove miracles. To I had that very thing happen to me. You know, I was preaching um, at, uh, it was a good Friday, I remember. I was I used to work in this office building. I was the boiler operator in that building. It was a big office building. Mm. And we were preaching. Um, and you could see the building in the distance. And, and the one fellow, he was preaching. And um, there's this atheist. He came up and he was heckling. And I don't know if you've experienced vicious hecklers, but this guy was vicious. And I actually love hecklers because hecklers oh. draw a crowd. And this guy was saying, you guys are crazy. You believe in a donkey that talked. You believe in a man that was dead for three days. You guys are nuts. And the preacher, he was flummoxed. He didn't know what to do. He was uh, sweating. He was nervous. And one rule in open-air preaching, I'm sure you've seen that before, is you do not steal the person's heckler. Because if I start engaging that person, then they all gravitate towards me, and the preacher standing in the box looks like an idiot. So you do not steal their heckler. You you let them deal with it. But um, he looked like he was having trouble. So I put on the other mic, and I stood beside him. And he says, get up here, get up here. So I stood up on the box, and I said to the fellow, look, I know that you think we're nuts. Uh, I mean, I used to work in that office building over there. There, If they saw me standing here, they'd think I was nuts too. But guess what? I do believe in a book that says a donkey talked. I do believe in a book that says a man was in a fish for three days. I do believe in a, in a, in a book that says an axe had floated. I do believe all of that stuff. And I, I say to them, but God could do that, right? The God who breathed the universe into existence could do all of that stuff. Right. You know, if he exists, I say, so your problem is not with miracles, your problems with the God of miracles. Yeah, yeah, my problem with the God of miracles. Okay, fine. I said, here's the problem. When you have the, a problem with the God of miracles, you can't have a problem with miracles. I said, what are you talking about? I said, you're going to want to say that that aspect of my Bible is not true. Fine. Where do you get truth without God? Right. And again, you know, that's a two-step approach. And, you know, actually, I don't know how much time we have left. But that's a two-step approach that I talk about in the film. The very first thing that you say to them is... Um, that's not what the Bible says. You know, they say, well, Jesus never walked the earth. That's not what the Bible says. Right. I don't believe in Noah's Ark. That's not what the Bible says. And what do they say? Well, I don't believe your Bible, a Bronze Age book written by goat herders. You guys are crazy. I say, so what's the next step? The next step is, oh, you don't believe it's true? Fine. Step two, where do you get truth without God? And then you see the absurdity of the unbelieving worldview because it's something they cannot answer. Now, I was telling you about my friend Cristiano, and he found my videos online, and uh, he used to be terrified when people are at least afraid when people would object to what he was saying because he didn't know how to answer them so he learned this two-step approach and he's back he was back in brazil now he's pastoring a small church but he was working at a call center and he was answering people presupposition they were coming from all over the call center and um they were saying are you cristiano because he was answering in a way that they'd never heard before and he said he was standing beside a, a a young christian and this woman came up to him same thing are you cristiano and the young man was talking with this woman, and he said to her, um, the most important thing in this world is to have peace with yourself. And Christiano turned to the guy and says, that's not what the Bible says. And he was hoping that this young man and the woman would say, well, well, we don't believe your Bible. So he can go to the next step and say, you don't believe it's true. And so he could continue the two-step two step approach. He said, but something really weird happened. He said, well, what does your Bible say? And he said, well, the most important thing is to have peace with God, and we can't. That's why Jesus came. 
And he was hoping that they say, well, we don't believe that's true. So we can go to the next step and say, where do you get truth without God? He said, but something really weird happened. They said, that makes a lot of sense. Wow. So we're here philosophizing even about this two-step approach instead of saying, this is what the Bible says. And another story that he told me, and I, I mean, I'll tell you sometime about how I got to meet this fellow, but just in incredible circumstances. But he was at call center and this woman came up to him and said, uh, are you Cristiano? Yes. What's your shirt made of? He didn't know what she was talking about. But if you're on the street at all, you know that this is a common objection. He was, this woman was asking about mixed fabrics in the Old Testament. He didn't know what she was talking about. I, you know, I saw where that was coming, even as he was telling me this story. What's your shirt made of? So he looked at his collar and he said, well, 50% polyester, 50% cotton. She said, you can't get to heaven. And he said, you know, in the past, he would have talked about the moral laws, the ceremonial laws, the cultural laws, which ones still apply, why mixed fabrics aren't a problem in this day and age. He would have done all of that. But now he recognized that she was suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, that she knows this God and she was just looking to trip him up so she could feel more comfortable about rejecting him. So he said to her, you're right. I can't get to heaven. Either can you. Why do you think Jesus died? Amen. And they had a wonderful gospel conversation. So, you know, I love to answer these questions. And, I, and again, there's more people that are far more eggheadish in this apologetic. I want to reach the lost. And to the degree that I have philosophized this argument, I need to repent of that. But I want to speak truth to them. And the truth is Jesus Christ. And that's what these people need. So, you know, I'm thankful that people are doing all these debates, doing all this philosophy stuff. I'm just tired of it. Man, and, and I know a lot of people are going to be encouraged. I mean, I'm very encouraged to hear you say that. I mean, here's someone who, I mean, you've done a number of debates with atheists. You're on camera going out, doing apologetics. You've got a film, How to Answer the Fool, debating Delahunty. You're an apologist, and here you are saying, preach the gospel. Brother, that is so encouraging. And you know, as you were speaking too, Sai, I'm thinking this, I'm thinking, how could, how could you break the Bible up? Because everywhere, like, you know, I, I spent years as a pastor and so I, I'm, I'm preaching on Sunday morning and it doesn't matter where in the text, where in the scripture you're preaching. It's all about Jesus. So it's not as if there's philosophy at the beginning. It's like what you're saying, you know, we don't philosophize these things and the scripture doesn't do it either. It's not like there's philosophy at the beginning and here you've got your preconditions for intelligibility here. And then there's this break between Old and New Testament. Maybe there's some moral law tossed in there as well. And then you've got your gospel, which is detached from everything else. It's like, no, from Genesis all the way straight through, it's gospel, 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 gospel. It all points to Jesus. And that's why you look, you read the New Testament. How many times is Paul and Peter and James, they're all quoting from the Old Testament because it's just as Jesus said in Luke 24, he showed them everywhere in the scripture that it, it pointed to him. So there is no chopping it all up. There is no saying, I believe this, but not that. It's all about Jesus Christ. And it, the whole scripture is screaming, Jesus Christ dies for our sins, was buried, uh, rises again, rules from heaven. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Brother, that you're you're right. That is exactly the message that we need to be bringing to people. And I, I think that that is very good news for Christians who want to defend their faith. The, the defense is very, very secondary to just preaching the gospel, proclaiming the gospel, urging our friends and neighbors to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. That's what saves people. That's what 
changes lives. And it's like, I don't remember if it was this episode or last episode, uh, you were you were saying we want to give them sheep food. We want to give them right. We don't we don't want to be out there trying to convince goats. We want to be giving sheep sheep food, and then we're going to trust God to do that work, right? Absolutely. Uh, bad apologetics ends up making us say things that we don't really believe, and the thing is, the unbeliever can see right through that. And I remember I had two dear brothers, and you know they're still dear brothers of mine. And they were out on college campuses, and they had on a Bristol board, Isaiah 53. And they were asking people to read Isaiah 53. Of course, they didn't, didn't have the, you know, which chapter or verse was on it. But um, they said, read this. And, of course, you know, it's talking about the crucifixion of Christ. It's talking about Jesus Christ. And they asked the people on this campus, who is this talking about? And to a man, they said, well, that's Jesus Christ. And they said, well, this was written, I think they said, 700 years before Christ. And they turned to the camera and they said, that's how we know the Bible is true. And I didn't say anything. I thought I want to call them up. And I thought, you know, I'm not going to do that. So I prayed about it. And then it was a number of months later that I was able to um, Skype with one of them. And we had a wonderful conversation and kind of sheepishly I brought up because they were so excited about this thing that they're doing on the university campus. I said, that thing that you do on the campus was that Bristol board. He goes, oh, yeah, Isaiah 53. Yeah. And you read that and the people say, well, that's talking about Jesus Christ. And you say, well, that was written 700 years before he was born. They say, yeah. I say, and then you turn to the camera and you say, that's how we know the Bible is true. So let me ask you something. Is that how you know the Bible is true? And he said, no. <laughs> That's what we do as Christians, that we end up saying things that aren't even the case in order to try and have some kind of avenue with the unbeliever when they can sense, you know, that, that you're being dishonest, that, that you're not being genuine. Um, a dear friend of mine, I just meet, met him recently. I won't mention his name. I don't know if he'd want me. He probably wouldn't mind. But um, he became a... Uh, presupposition. He was introdu introduced to this, and uh, he sent me a picture of his ministry. It was a dumpster going down the river on fire, and um, because he was, his eyes were open to the truth of this uh, apologetic, and um, he said, I want you to do something. I want you to, um, to have a look at this talk that I gave on um, why we believe the Bible, and so I watched it, and all the things that he said in it were true, all facts about the Bible, and I said, but I want you to think about this. I said, you had a bunch of people in that classroom. I don't know how many there were, 30 or something like that. I said, if you ask for a show of hands at the beginning of that talk, how many of them believe the Bible is true? How many would raise their hand? He said, well, probably all of them. I said, and you talk for an hour of why we believe the Bible is true? I said, so they're taking notes and they're going to walk out and tell unbelievers the things that you told them why they believe the Bible is true when they believed it when they walked in there. I said, don't you see a problem with that? I said, they didn't believe the Bible was true because of all those facts that you gave them. Sure, they're all true. But if they use all those facts that that person gave them to defend their faith in the street, people can sniff that out. I believe the Bible is true by the testimony of the Holy Spirit. And if you reject it, your world is absurd. And I cannot help you if you don't like that. But if you want to know how to be made right with God, I'd be happy to tell you. And, and it's a difference. And, I, I, you know, I understand, you know, people think it's too simplistic. Fine. But we're commanded to go out and to give defense to anyone who asks. And if you have to do it like most of the apologists out there, you can never do it. And not only that, you have an excuse not to do it. And I know I've said that before, but people, they, I think they elevate apologetics to make it so difficult to give them a reason to not, to, defend, to not defend their faith. But apologetics easy is easy. Read your Bible, believe what it says, talk about the God that saved you, and you can defend your faith. Amen. Amen. Well, man, I, I think we should probably bring it to a close there. I mean, this is... Uh... This is such an incredible, wonderful reminder that 
the, the Bible that we want to defend defends itself. God's word authenticates itself. There is no greater standard than God's word by which, look, just like in Hebrews, it says there's no one greater than God by which he could swear. So he swore by himself. There's no one greater than God. There's not, there's no standard for authenticating the Bible that's higher than the Bible. So believe the Bible. I mean, I'm not even going to try to repeat what Sai just said. You, if you believe the Bible, stand on the Bible, get out there, proclaim the Bible, and let God do the work. And um, I want to thank you all for watching this episode four already of Answer Anyone with Sai Ten Kate, hosted by Joel Sedeckes. I want to encourage you to go ahead and get more from Sai at Proof That God Exists dot org. Um, from there, Sai, can they also access your Patreon? Yeah, if they go to my uh, donate page, um, blow the dust off at first. And no, actually, people have been very generous, so I, I do appreciate that. But uh, that's one of the things. I worked in the auto industry, and I was making a good salary. And people say that I went into Christian ministry for the money. They have no idea. But, uh, <laughs> I, I would appreciate the support and, of course, uh, support Joel in this endeavor as well, if you would be so kind. Well, thank you, brother. And uh, for anyone who wants to support this show, if you've, if you've been blessed by it, uh, you want to support the work that Cy and I are doing together, you can go to patreon.com slash answer anyone, all one word, patreon.com slash answer anyone. We certainly do appreciate uh, that. So thank you very much. And uh, if this was a blessing to you, um, would you share it with a friend? Like us on Facebook. Give us a hit that subscribe button on YouTube and make sure you hit the bell so that you never miss a moment of answer anyone with Sites and Riggin Cape. Also, if you uh, if you like this kind of content, be sure to go back, watch the interview that I did with Sai on the Think Podcast last summer in 2020. Catch all the episodes of Answer Anyone and the Think Podcast by going to thethink.institute. And uh, you can find all, all of our great resources there through the Think Institute. And um, man, you know, you really want to get encouraged? Just go onto YouTube and Google or uh, search Cy 10 Kate Apologetics. And I know that, look, there's going to be some older stuff there where Cy would say, I've learned since those days, but I'll tell you what, you will be encouraged by it. I have been very encouraged by this brother. So Cy, as always, I greatly appreciate you, brother. Thank you for the work that you're doing. And, um, and you might not want someone to call you awesome, but we can both agree that Jesus Christ is awesome. And, uh, and his word is very awesome. So we can stand on his word, read God's word, trust God's word as you study and prepare to answer anyone. Till next time. <laughs>